Morning, y'all. Everybody awake? Got extra shots of espresso back in the cafe if you need it today. Um, So we are uh, probably pretty close to being in the middle of uh, our series entitled An Overview of the Bible. And we've been delving a little deeper into its uh, pages and trying to look at um, a lot of things that maybe we wouldn't take the time to look at on a Sunday, typical Sunday morning, uh, look at things from a different perspective. But the whole idea is that we're trying to put together uh, a belief system uh, that is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Because if the Bible is going to be our source of truth, if that's, if that's going to be our foundation, then our belief system really needs to match up with that. And, and a lot of times we just don't think through things in a systematic way in terms of the things that we believe. And so that's really one of the things we're trying to um, get done. And so if you remember, uh, if you were here, had the privilege of being here last week, we made it through 34 books of the Old Testament of the Bible in 24 minutes, as many people were, you know, pointed out that I didn't do it in 20, that it was actually 24 and a half Uh, But not to be outdone, today um, we're going to set a new record, and we're going to cover 400 years of history in just 15 minutes, all right? So, uh, you know, so when we open up our Bibles, and you go to the very, uh, you go to the very last page of the Old Testament, which is in Malachi uh, chapter 4, verse, my eyes don't deceive me, 6. And, um, and you flip the page, all of a sudden you find yourself in the New Testament, right? So you go from here to here. What most people don't get is that when you do this, there is 400 years of history between this page and the next. And that is a period of time that we refer to as the intertestamental period. In other words, the time period between the two testaments. Some people uh, refer to this as the 400 years of silence because it appears that during this time, God goes dark. Right. So historically, throughout the Old Testament, we see God... Um, speaking through his prophets. We see him appearing in the the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night to the Israelites. And he's very involved in uh, the decision-making and the affairs of the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. But then there is this 400-year period where there is nothing. And we never see God, the God of the Old Testament, we never see God like this ever again. It stops. Something changes between the old and the new and makes everything different. And so it's this 400-year piece of history that I want to focus in on this morning. And I couldn't imagine a better Sunday than Time Change Sunday to take on a 400-year history lesson. Uh, So I think that the thesis for what we're talking about comes out of the epistles, and in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to free those who were also under the law, that we might be adopted by God as his children. 
All right, now the significant phrase that I want to focus in on this morning is when it says, when the time had fully come, or we can also translate that to read that Jesus came at just the right time. Well, have you ever wondered why Jesus came at that particular moment in time? Because it was almost like for 400 years, God set the stage for the arrival of his son. And so what I want to do this morning is to look at the time period that took place between the Old Testament and the New that created the exact right time for Jesus to come on the scene. And so there's three aspects that I want to look at. And the first one is that I really believe that the time was right culturally. You may remember where we left off last week is that the Jews had become a conquered people. They were no longer concentrated in their homeland of Israel. Uh, They were truly scattered all throughout the land. They were exiled, as it was called. And those who were allowed to return home under the Persian rule um, were allowed to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and the walls. And so we see all of that taking place. And while technically the Jews were still ruled by the Persians, they could enjoy some level of independence because really, for the most part, the Persians just kind of left them alone to do their own thing. However, it all changed in 331 B.C. Alexander the Great, which is a name you may recognize, he defeats the Persian king, Darius III, and that gives him control of all of the lands of Persia, and then by default, the promised land of Israel, because that was included under the Persian rule at the time. And so in many respects, Alexander the Great has been regarded by historians as being the great conqueror of all times because he just conquered most of the ancient world in a very short period of time. He actually actually had a very short uh, lifespan and um, was able to accomplish a lot in his life. But his vision, Alexander the Great's vision, his desire was to create a worldwide empire Um, that would be unified by one language, custom, and civilization. So if Alexander the Great had his way, we'd all be Greek today, right? Um, Under his influence, he created this process called Hellenization. And the Hellenization was the process of taking any non-Greeks and really helping them to... um, Uh, to take hold of the Greek culture. It was the adoption of the Greek language and culture and religion in all parts of the world. And so Hellenism became so popular, in fact, that it persisted for even almost a hundred years after Alexander the Great died because Greek culture was so wildly popular. The Greek culture was like, you know, the culture of New York is today. You know, it's just the seedbed of, of culture, of fashion and design and and sex, and culture, and so there was this really uh, attraction to the Greek culture that, that occurred, and while Alexander the Great permitted the Jews to be able to observe their own laws and religious rituals at the time, he had a lot of influence on their culture, and there were many Jews who became known as Hellenized Jews In other words, they were Jewish and they believed in God and in Jewish tradition, and yet they took on more of the Greek culture into their homes. 
But there was no question, I think, that the greatest impact that the Greeks had on the ancient world under their rule was that they introduced the Greek language. And most people became bilingual in a very short period of time. Speaking Greek then was as prevalent as speaking English is today. It became the language of business and the language of culture. And so it was during this time that the Old Testament of the Bible was translated from the original Hebrew language into the Greek version known as the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And this is important because it meant that there would no longer be any language barrier when the apostles begin to, for instance, spread the gospel of Jesus Christ across other parts of the world. Everyone would understand what they're saying, and everyone for the first time would have access to a set of scriptures that they could actually read and understand. So culturally, there were some significant things that went on in that 400-year period. The second thing that I want to draw your attention to is that the time was right geopolitically. The independence that the Jews enjoyed ended in 63 B.C., when a Roman general named Pompey came and conquered the ancient world and along with it, the people of Israel. And so you just have to remember the Jewish people, all these people conquering each other, all that going on, you know, one after the other after the other, the Israelites were kind of just kicked around a lot. And they had become really an oppressed people for hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, think about it. Since 586 B.C., it's now 63 B.C., they've been under the rule of so many empires as a conquered people. And now the Romans come in, in 63 BC, and they're pretty heavy-handed. And it is not an exaggeration to say that the Jewish people were absolutely tired of being an oppressed people, and they wanted to be free. They wanted their independence. And so now, during this 400-year period, as the Jews begin to read the Scriptures... They read into the scriptures about this promised Messiah, and now they're not reading it in a religious standpoint. They're reading it politically and thinking, this promised Messiah, he's coming to deliver the people of Israel so that we can overthrow Rome. Right? They believe that God is going to send somebody who's going to lead a rebellion that is going to help them to overthrow the Roman Empire, to win their independence so that they can reclaim the land that God has given them. But little did they know that that ship has sailed. And because of the unfaithfulness of their forefathers, they basically have lost the promised land that God has given them and their independence. And the Messiah who was coming was not coming to save them from the evil empire of Rome. But instead... The promised Messiah was coming to deliver them from themselves. Yeah, so this whole idea of the promised Messiah, if you think about it though, like God's promises in the Old Testament where he was making them promises, he was promising you know, that the ancestors would be like the stars, he promised them the promised land, he was very involved in the battles, and so it was very physical and, and, and literal promises that God was making. And so when they talk about this Messiah, they were hoping that this Messiah would come and deliver them from the evil Roman Empire. 
in the New Testament, God's promises shift, right? From the physical to the spiritual. If you look at the Roman Empire, the map of, throw that map of the uh, Roman Empire. So, so, you know, here's what's going on. Uh, the Roman Empire is basically everything in this, whatever color that is. And, um, you know, you have Rome over here in Italy, obviously. And then way over here on the other side of the Mediterranean, you have um, Judea or Israel um, and Jerusalem here. And so it, it really has no strategic value for uh, the Romans, but it's important for them to maintain control in their empire. And what is important is that they're getting taxes and goods from this region and these people. And so it's strategically, uh, militarily not important, but it is economically important. And so if you can imagine, the, the Romans sent over soldiers to police this area. They were here in this territory, and they were there to police the people, uh, to collect the taxes, and make sure that, you know, everything was peaceful. They, just, they really just didn't want to even think about these Israel people. They just didn't want any, any problems. And so, uh, geopolitically, this was a very, very uh, important time. And it got even more intense, I think, um, and, 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 of course, the, the Jews absolutely hated this whole thing because the Romans were so involved and heavy-handed. But it got even more intense when there were Roman empires that came later on, like Augustus Caesar, who declared himself to be a god, and that everybody in the Roman Empire should bow down and, and worship uh, Caesar as a god. And, of course, so many of the, of the Jews rejected that idea and, and rebelled. But... So what was going on, and I think it's important to understand some of the historical context as the New Testament begins, is what was going on was there was a lot of Jewish rebellions that were occurring in the intertestamental period. So the Maccabees that were very uh, famous for their battle, which um, you know, is the reason why the, the Jews celebrate uh, Hanukkah. Um, but there was these group of rebels that emerged during this time called the Zealots. And they were really there to, they really wanted to figure out a way to overthrow Rome. And so while they weren't big enough to take on the Roman government and the Roman armies, they could make their lives miserable. Um, and so some of the zealots were so intense that they would actually carry around daggers in their cloaks, and whenever they would find a Roman soldier who was by himself, they would, they would go and kill him. That was part of the gig. So all of that to understand, like the Gospel of Mark chapter 3, when it lists the disciples, and all of a sudden you read that one of the disciples, Simon, is a zealot. Now it begins to take on a different context, right? And you wonder, okay, is this guy really following Jesus because he believes he's the Son of God? Or is he following Jesus because he thought Jesus was the Messiah, the one who was promised, who's going to lead them in a rebellion to overthrow the Roman government? And you can also imagine that when you have two disciples that are diametrically opposed, like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, who is collecting taxes on the Romans' behalf, you can understand, gosh, that's a recipe for disaster, right? There was probably no love lost between them, and there had to be a little tension that was going on at first. And so now you can also begin to understand why the opening verses of the New Testament, if you ever read Matthew chapter 1, it starts in a very boring way because it talks about the genealogy of Jesus and this person begot this person and this person begot this person because what it does is it traces the lineage 
of Jesus Christ from Abraham to uh, Jacob to King David all the way to Joseph and Mary because what it is doing, it is showing that when at Jesus' crucifixion, for instance, when they mock him in a way and call him the king of the Jews, that he really is the legit king of the Jews. Like he really is of the line of King David and is the next in line to be king. So then you also then understand why when King Herod, when Jesus was born, you have this King Herod who goes out and kills all of the male children in the area because what is he trying to do? He's trying to get to Jesus. He's trying to kill Jesus because he thinks that Jesus is the legit next king of the Jews who's going to take over his throne, and he wants to put that down from the very beginning. And so when you start looking at the historical context of the Bible, there's all kinds of complicated dynamics that are going on that you know a lot of us will just read through the scriptures and not understand, but there's a, a lot of historical con- uh, context that emerges. So the last point that I want to make about the geopolitical part is that um, the other thing that the Romans did was to create what they called Pax Romana, which was Roman peace. And what they were really doing was the Romans were not focused in on military operations. They were focused in on making money. And so they created economic stability and a marketplace for the first time. And so for the first time in the ancient world, so if you can imagine before this 400-year period, the world was kind of in chaos, right? Everybody was kind of conquering everybody else. You have this 400-year period that emerges. But when the Romans come in, they institute order. There is law and order, so to speak. And... um, they also are the first to put in highways all along the um, all through the Roman Empire. So now all of those areas are now suddenly connected, and you can access all of those areas that you weren't able to before because they believed in the import and export and wanted to create free trade. So the reason why this is important is because this all paved the way. Excuse the pun for the gospel then to be able to reach every part of the modern world. So when the apostles go out and to, to, and to go out and preach and to teach Jesus Christ and begin to take Christianity to the rest of the world, all of a sudden you have access to the rest of the world that you didn't have before. It was amazing. The third thing that I want to talk about, that the time was right, um, the time was right religiously. So it says in Galatians 4, in our passage, God sent his son, born of a woman, and he was born under the law to free those who were also under the law. Well, what does that mean that Jesus was born under the law? Over that 400-year period, the Jewish faith had become very politicized, and it had become all about keeping the, the nuances of the law of the Jewish faith, which, while it started very simply, was you know the Ten Commandments, right? That's where the law started, was God handing Moses the tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments. But what happened was, and Greg talked about this a few weeks ago, but it actually, the law grew into 613 other commandments that were created that made up the entirety of the Jewish law. So now you have all these laws that you have to keep perfectly according to the Jewish faith. And the evolution of these commandments derived from mostly from the first five books of the Bible that are called the books of law, or we call it the Pentateuch. In the Jewish faith, it's called the Torah. And this is the core of the Jewish faith. This is their belief system because they believe that from these five books, most of the 613 commandments came and they had to follow these to the letter of the law. 
And so as the keepers of the law, the religious leaders of that day had gained a significant amount of power. I mean, just think about it. They could have somebody put to death because somebody is accused of committing adultery. Or they could have this person uh, arrested for not keeping the Sabbath. There is a power about that where they now have some control of the people. So I want to um, introduce you to four different groups of religious leaders that I think that are important to know. Because as we read through the New Testament, these four groups pop up from time to time. Uh, And while they are separate, they're all pretty connected. So first of all, the Romans wanted to give the Jews the appearance of having control. And so they gave, you know, King Herod as a figurehead. He's kind of a political lackey, um, you know, for the Jews. Um, And then they granted limited authority to the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 religious leaders who were kind of the moral authority of the Jewish people. And you might call them like the Senate or the Supreme Court of of the Jews. But you may remember that it was the Sanhedrin that was responsible for the arrest of Jesus Christ, right? And you also may remember that they didn't have the power to put him to death. They had limited power, right? They were able to bring up Jesus initially on charges... Um, based on his religious viewpoints that went against um, Jewish law, but they didn't have the power to put him to death as a result of that. And so they had to take Jesus then before Pontius Pilate, who was the real law in the land because he was the Roman governor at the time, and they twisted all of these accusations that they were making against Jesus religiously and twisted them to make um, Pilate believe that Jesus was actually a zealot, that he was rebelling against the Roman government. And so um, it was really Pilate who ultimately was the only one who had the authority to sentence Jesus to death. So in exchange for a little power, the Romans gave the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin promised Rome that they would spy on the Jewish people and they would spy out any people who were any signs of Jewish rebels or troublemakers, and they would report them back to Pilate. So again, they had a lot of power because they could make a lot of people's lives miserable, especially when it was convenient for them, like in the case of Jesus, where they just want to get rid of somebody. They had the power to do that. So the Sanhedrin was made up of these three groups uh, of three groups of people. There were the Sadducees, which the word uh, Sadducees come from uh, the word uh, righteous ones. And the Sadducees were considered to be the upper class um, of the religious leaders because they had more wealth. And so um, they had more power because of their wealth um, as a result of that. And as you can imagine, they weren't very popular with common folk who weren't wealthy at the time. And the Sadducees embraced the Greek uh, customs and culture that Rome was introducing because they loved the more lavish lifestyle, and they had the ability to buy the fine fabrics and all of that stuff that the, the Greeks were putting out there. So that's the Sadducees. Then you have the Pharisees, and the Pharisees we read about probably the most in the New Testament, and they were the more popular party among the middle class. And the Pharisees were all about maintaining appearances and making sure that everybody around them knew how religious they were. Right? They literally thought they were better than everybody else and looked down on anybody else that could be possibly considered to be a sinner, which basically they'd be looking down on me and you all the time. 
And the Pharisees were all about looking good on the outside, while on the inside their hearts were cold, and they were all in it for themselves. And there was a third group uh, of religious leaders called the scribes. And many scholars believe that the scribes were simply the elite of the uh, Pharisees. They were more educated, more respected, and you might call them the lawyers of Jerusalem because they studied and knew the law like anybody else. So they had three jobs. One is they copied the scriptures by hand. That was one of the things that's why they were called the scribes. Secondly, they interpreted the law. And the third thing is they are the ones who really did most of the teaching in the temple and the synagogues, and so they were referred to as the teachers of the law. They were like the top of their class. But listen to what Jesus has to say about them in Mark chapter 12. Jesus says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats at the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. But really, they're preying on widows' houses. And by that he means they're, he's taking advantage of them financially and enriching themselves through the giving that they give to the temples. And for show, they make lengthy prayers. Such men should be punished most severely. I don't think that Jesus had a lot of respect for the scribes as most people did in their culture. And so it was in this environment that Jesus was born under the law as our passage in Galatians says, meaning that religion in that day was off and it had become very politicized, very judgmental. And what was happening was that the, re- the religious leaders were really enriching themselves financially and in power and they were really keeping common people out. They were keeping common people away from God. I mean, G- Jesus said in uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Pretty tough talk. And so if the religious leaders were considered to be the gatekeepers to God, and the law was the lock on the gate, then Jesus would be the one to kick it down and to make God accessible to everyone for the first time in hundreds of years. Jesus said, I mean, Jesus really blew up religion in that day. I I don't think any of us can really understand the impact that Jesus, when he came on the scene and started preaching, the impact of his words. But he comes on in Matthew, again, in Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These are the, these are the most elite religious leaders, and Jesus is just tearing into them. What Jesus is really saying, and, and so this is really important from a religious standpoint in, in terms of the context of that day, is that Jesus begins to tear down all this idea of the Jewish law and the politicization and the judgmentalism. And he says, look, unless you have a heart for God, you have nothing. Jesus said, what God cares about is what's in your heart. Not about how great you appear or your money or your wealth or or anything else. 
And so needless to say, there was this tension that arose between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day that went on and on and on and did not stop until the day they had him killed. So for 400 years, God sets the stage for the arrival of his son. And in that 400 period, 400 year period, there was a civilization that was created with law and order and peace. And there were highways that created access to the rest of the world. And there was a language, a common language that everybody could speak and get access to the scriptures for the first time at just the right time. At just the right time, Jesus was born under the law so that he could free those of us, you and me, who were also under the law. Jesus broke the death grip that these religious leaders had on on God, basically. And he kicked the door to heaven open and he said, Now, all y'all come in. You may be a bunch of messed up sinners, but you're my messed up sinners. I will adopt you as my own, as my children. And the good news of the gospel begins to penetrate the darkness of the 400 years. As now, all of a sudden, we hear God speak again, but in a whole new voice, in a whole new way. Jesus did everything that he did. He took on the religious leaders. He reinterpreted the the law. He He was nailed to the cross. He was beaten. He broke down the doors of hell. He he was resurrected from the dead for all of one reason. There was only one thing that motivated him to take his plan to the final end, to the ends of the earth. That he knew that one day, that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, That while we were a bunch of messed up sinners, Jesus died for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to come into it and to change everything.